understands, the more empowered they are. And I've gone into different school districts as an advocate just to sit there and say, okay, you want to give them this, but it sounds like this is also what they need. I don't have to say what my background is, really who I am other than my name, but if you have a little bit of knowledge, that changes the dynamics of every meeting. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Well, we're talking with Betsy Ballard, a retired teacher who taught in the Unionville Chads Ford School District in Chester County, Pennsylvania, where she worked as a family and consumer science teacher and also uh, in special education. Um, as I mentioned in our first uh, episode with her, uh, we were students together at Emerson College and are reconnected recently and just talking about the uh, needs of uh, students who have special needs and how she's worked to support parents in trying to navigate uh, very bureaucratic systems uh, to get appropriate services for their children. Welcome back, Betsy. Um, let's talk about COVID and, and uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about learning loss for um, uh, for kids, all kids, uh, but I'm just wondering how you, you think um, kids with special needs fared during the, you know, just the isolation and uh, forced, um, you know, uh, seclusion, <laughs> you know? Um, no, I said, I think I have sort of a, an interesting perspective in that um, by the time COVID hit, I had moved to family and consumer science from special ed. So I was teaching online and trying to support the students. And then I started tutoring this young man and supporting him online. And then I have several friends with young children, actually two on my street that have learning differences and both have IEPs. And I think the primary thing was the seclusion and not being around peers. And I think that it made it very hard for them to stay on top of things. But I also think because so many parents, especially the working parents that were online and trying to support their child at the same time, just didn't work because you have to have a motivated child to want to do that. And if you have a child with special needs, you have to spend then extra time with them. So I think... COVID probably impacted them more than any other population. And depending on the severity, um, it could take quite a while for them to really catch up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And if you had a, a, you know, a specialist who was assigned to sit with the child and, uh, but because of um, just, uh, you know, quarantine protocols, um, that child didn't have that, that, you know, that, that personalized um, assistance, I can imagine that would in some cases be even traumatic for kids, you know, 
um, depending on the degree of needs. And you know, it was really tough, which is mm. something that you might not think of. Um, at the time, I was making a lot of face masks, and I was specifically asked to make them with a plastic front because the special needs students, especially the ones who were more severe, that take facial cues, if you had a mask covering your face, they couldn't get any cues from you. Mm. But the minute that they could see your mouth and see if you were smiling or see if you were frowning so they could take those cues, the way they reacted to their teacher or their support giver was completely different. Mm -hmm. Well, without uh, disclosing any names or anything, can you kind of maybe share with us uh, some of the ways you've helped parents who um, were sort of stuck in the system, you know, or really weren't, weren't, weren't sure about how to advocate for their child and for what was best for their child? It's, it's been very different depending on the school district, my relationship with a family, and since I've been retired. So one child that I have remained close with, which has been wonderful because I've been able to see her go from a timid little sixth grader. Now she's a mother with three children and um, she's learned how to use her differences and work them with her strengths, which has been wonderful. But when I was fairly new, I think it was my, it was actually my first class. And I noticed this girl was struggling and I got together with the parents and I said, listen, there's something going on that we should address. They were so kind and generous and we ended up getting her tested. She had an IEP all through college. As educators, we are not at liberty to do that anymore. And I think that is awful. And I always said if I won the lottery, I wanted to open up an advocacy agency because I think it's so important to sit with a parent, make them feel better about the system, help them to understand what the system is. Because when they go into an IEP meeting, they have a belief that the people across from the table are going to do the best they can for their child. And if they don't know anything about education, they don't know the questions to ask. They don't know if one thing is said, but maybe something else should be done. There's language that they just do not have. And they're scared. They don't understand what's going on. I sat with one of my neighbors. Her child has a 56-page IEP. And things kept coming up. Like they highlighted he was at risk in different areas. And I said to her, okay, but there isn't anything in the goals or anything in the specially designed instruction that addresses that your child's at risk. And that seems something that really we should worry about a little bit more right now than anything else. And just as an aside, um, specially de designed instruction, if you don't know what it is, is really probably the most important part of the IEP because that specially des designed instruction says what you as a teacher will be required to do. So it might be give them a test in a larger font, let them leave the room for frequent breaks, proximity to the teacher, any number of things. And that specially designed instruction is special to that specific child. 
I feel that the more a parent understands, the more empowered they are. And I've gone into different school districts as an advocate just to sit there and say, okay, you want to give them this, but it sounds like this is also what they need. And I found, which is, it's, I think it's sad that I can go in and I start talking like I know something about special education and you watch that meeting change. I don't have to say what my background is, really who I am other than my name, but if you have a little bit of knowledge, that changes the dynamics of every meeting. Mm-hmm. Are I there just, certain... Yeah. I'm sorry. No, I was going to ask if there's certain maybe kind of um, best practices about preparing for a parent in terms of preparing for the me- these meetings or, ma- or making the most of the meetings. So whether it's keeping a paper trail or, or um, you know, just, um, I don't know. I mean, is there, are there certain suggestions you would have for, for parents who are trying to navigate the complexities of all this? Um, I would say go in with a list of what you're seeing, what you think the child might need, and have a conversation with your child. I mean, obviously, depending on the age, you're going to get different feedback. But why are you struggling in this area? Why can't you stay focused? Um, Like, what do you see that's getting in your way? Obviously, if it's a younger child, it's different. And one of the hardest things is to get a district to pay a lot of attention to a child who's very young. I remember, now this is on the other side because special education is a big umbrella. So the very mentally retarded are at one end and the very gifted are at the other end and they all have IEPs. And I thought that my daughter wasn't being challenged enough. And they said, oh no, she's only in second grade so we wouldn't be able to test that yet. And I, here's the big thing parents need to know. If you think something's not right, Or if you just want to exercise your right and find out their cognitive ability. If you write down that you would like to have a full academic and cognitive battery done, that district has 10 days from the time that they get it in writing to start to act on it. Mm. Now, obviously, if it's a child who's getting straight A's and everything seems fine, they're not they're not really going to take you seriously. But I was talking to a young man the other day, honestly, I'm getting a new garage door. And I got talking to this 35 year old about his son who's in ninth grade and he was getting straight A's and he's been tanking in the last couple of months. So I teased it out a little bit more and I asked him what was going on. And he said, well, he seems to be struggling. I said, hold on. Has he been tested? And he said, well, no, what difference would that make? And I said, well, one magical thing, but for a parent, this is very difficult to hear. If your child's grades all of a sudden start to go down for no explained reason, something's going on. And if it continues, that can often be an easy way to get in the door to have someone pay attention to you that something's going on with the child. If the grades are just going along and you think that something might be off, very, very different than all of a sudden the grades starting to drop off. Mm -hmm. And obviously if you see something behaviorally and there are behavioral 
assessments that they can do as well. Mm-hmm. But I don't think enough parents realize that it's up to them to push the system to make sure that what's done for their child is correct. Let me ask you, uh, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, there's a, there's a, a phenomenon happening where students, particularly in some cases, students of color are being designated as special needs um, kids and they actually don't have a disability. So there's a presumption that, um, you know, that they're slow or whatever else. And so they get labeled in a way that really is a detriment to their self-esteem. And, um, and I'm just curious if, you know, if you've seen that phenomenon and what parents can do if they, if they fear that their, their child is being labeled in a way that's inaccurate and doesn't, doesn't serve them. Again, receiving the label of special education would only come after extensive testing. Okay. So at the end of that testing, the parent has the option to either go with an IEP or, sorry, <laughs> it's okay. say, thank you very much, but we don't think that we need it. I did have a young man, actually, it's funny, I'm thinking about, he was sitting at the table behind me, um, a young man of color, wonderful little boy. He was in fifth grade. And the more I worked with him, especially on math and word problems and getting him to understand and break down what a word problem was asking him, he had no problem whatsoever. And it was simply about giving him the tools to look at things a little differently than maybe that teacher presented them. His grades started to go up just not because I was that great, but I just got him to look at things through a different lens. And it turned out that no, he didn't need an IEP, doesn't have one anymore, was doing fine on his own, sadly because he was in the district that I taught in. Um, which has happened a couple times, which I, I just, I think it's horrible. The family decided that it would be better for them because of the color of their skin to move out of the district. Mm. And I would have preferred that they stay and fought and said, you know what? We are the same as everybody else, but they made the decision to leave because they thought it would be better for their children. And mm. I do think that you're right. I think also, um, students from other countries. If English isn't their first language, unless it's specific countries, if it's China, if it's India, then the presumption tends to be on the other side, that they're probably bright. And, you know, they, the assumption is just not made equally. Let me put it that way. So Mm -hmm. I, I definitely do think you're right. Yeah. Betsy, this has been terrific. I just want to ask, are there um, books or websites or um, resources or or even are, are you available for people who might be listening and want to reach out to you? Or what, what are your recommendations for parents who've been um, you know, listening to this and our previous recording and, and are looking for ways to follow up and take action? I'm happy to talk to anyone anytime. Um, I love the fact that I'm retired so that I have, I have the luxury of that, that I didn't have before. I know 
that there are advocacy agencies because my neighbor, before I talked to her, she said, well, I talked to these people and they said they could come to a meeting. And I said, you're welcome to spend that money because it was very expensive. I said, but they went through advocacy training, but weren't necessarily special education teachers. So weren't really in the mix in the classroom. So I think one thing that parents can do there are a million special ed teachers who are retired that I think are happy to talk to people and to try to empower parents so that they can get what's correct for their students. I think sometimes parents are maybe expecting something that, or they're seeing something that isn't there. Their student might be, you know, their child might be a B student instead of an A student and that needs to be okay. But if they really, can do a lot better than they should be supported in that. But parents have a lot of, sometimes they have too much, but they have a lot of power to make sure that their child's getting the best education possible. So feel free to give my email address um, anyone that might want it. Great. Thank you so much. So great to see you and reconnect and we'll, we'll, we'll stay more in touch than we have over all these years. Absolutely. Thank you very much. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.